This week's parasha is Parsha's Kisisa. At the end of the parasha, we have a very interesting detail about the radiance of Meshur Abenu. When Meshur Abenu came down from Har Sinai, all of a sudden he had Karan Arpanov. The there were rays of light that were emanating from his face. There's Machlech is exactly at what point this happened. And the people were afraid of him. Klal Yisrael saw these rays of Kedusha coming out of Meshur Rabbeinu. They were unable to look at his face. And Rashi says that the reason why they were afraid was because of their Avera. Because of the Chetzal Rashi in Pasuk Lamed at the end of the parasha says, Come and see how great is the power of a sin. Before they were chayt, they were the eagle. What does the Pasuk say? They were able to actually look at the Rabbi Yisrael himself. They weren't afraid. Klal Yisrael, before the Chet HaEgel, were able to look at HaKadosh Baruch Hu and they were not afraid, they didn't tremble. Umisha Osu HaEgel, Ach Mikarne Haideh Shalmesh HaYom Arsim, Umiz Dazim, and after they were chaytah with the Egel, they couldn't even look at Moshe Rabbeinu's face. That's how much they dropped in terms of their stature, in terms of their status. All because of an Avera. In any event, Moshe Rabbeinu had this great Kedusha coming out of him, and people were afraid to look at him. And so the Eitzor was that he made a mask. Moshe Rabbeinu put a mask on his face. When they were coming to him, when he was giving a shear to Kal Yisrael, when he was talking and learning with Kal Yisrael, he would not wear a mask. But when he finished, after that point, he immediately put on a mask, and that is how it was. And then the Pesukim continue, and they speak about how, again, when they saw Moshe Rabbeinu's face with a Karan Arpanov, Moshe put the mask back on until he came to speak with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. When he spoke to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, or when he spoke in learning to Kuala Yisrael, he would take the mask off. And the question is, that Memonoshach, if Kuala Yisrael could not look at Moshe Rabbeinu's face, they were afraid of looking at that Kedusha, that intense light emanating from him. So then he should be wearing his mask even when he's giving shear. And if they were able to look at him when he was giving shear, so let him look at him even when he wasn't giving shear. Why is it that when he was talking and learning with them, he took off his mask, and when he was not engaged in Tyra, when he wasn't giving a shear, then he, was, he had to then put the mask back on. And the, the simple shot that's given by many Mepharshim is that when a person, when a Rebbe gives a shear, it's very critical and it's very important that the Talmidim are able to see their Rebbe. Now even though it's true that Mesha naturally should have been wearing a mask, but there is a Pasuk in Yeshaya that says, V'hayu e'necha reyes es mayrecha. On a lot of the Sukkah posters you see whenever they have pictures of G'daylem, they have this Pasuk in Yeshaya, V'hayu e'necha reyes es mayrecha. There's something very significant and very special and very vital that when you're listening to your Rebbe, when you're coming to a Shia of a Rebbe, that you're supposed to be looking at him. Looking at his Kedusha, looking at the way he gives over the Shear, looking at the way he, he expresses himself during Shear. All of these things are very, very important in terms of the Messiah of Tyra. And so, 
This is the way many of the Mepharshim explain why when Moshe Rabbeinu was giving shear, he had to take off the mask, because the proper tzura of giving over Torah to Talmidim from a Rebbe to a Talmud is dafka looking at the Rebbe. And he had to take off the mask. The Rebbe had to be seen. His face had to be visible to the Talmidim. It wouldn't be Shayach otherwise in any form to give over Torah without showing his face to the Talmidim. I'll never forget when I went to uh, learn in Eretz Yisrael. So I had a choice of which yeshiva to go to, and I wasn't sure which one uh, to choose. But I think the the final straw, the reason why I chose to go to yeshivas Kaltaira and Yerushalayim and Bayit Vagan, was because the Rashiva was Rishlan Azam and Ayurbas. And it was right after the tear of Ramesha, and I just felt I wanted to really be in the presence of an Adam Gadol. And so when I finally, first I went to two other very Hashem and then I went into the Rashiva Shir, and it was an amazing experience because to sit by the Gadol Adar whether you understood shear or whether you didn't, it, was a, it wasn't a very difficult shear. It was a very interesting shear and it was a very accessible shear. But for me personally, it was a very amazing experience. And I found myself just gazing at Rav Zaman the whole shear. I wanted to take notes. I couldn't. Because Rav Zaman used to take off his glasses at the beginning of shear. I don't know why he did that, but that's, I don't remember him ever wearing his glasses during Shir, he'd take them off. And, and I can't describe it in words, but he had a, a Karan Arpanov. He just had this light, this holy light that was coming out of his face. His skin was shiny. He just radiated just Kedusha. It wasn't Shayach for a person to have any Sveikas in Amuna if you were able to see with your eyes Reb Shlomo Zaman Arabas. just wasn't. It's interesting, there was a, uh, a, a mayor of New York City who years ago, maybe in the 1930s, 20s, 30s, when the Baruch Bear came to America, so this mayor who wasn't Jewish, he was, uh, he was a guy, he presented Reb Baruch Bear with the key to the city. That was like an honorary thing that when a big dignitary comes to New York, they present them with a key to the city. And this mayor made a public statement when he was presenting the key to Bar Fair, and he says that, Bar, that Rabbi Leibowitz refutes Darwinism. Because if you see the face of this holy man, it's not possible to believe in any which way that man comes from monkeys. Just can't believe that. You see the radiance on Rabbi Affairs, on Rabbi Leibowitz's face. He refutes single-handedly Darwinism. Without uttering a word, Darwinism is dead. And that's exactly the way I felt every single day that I went to Shir, to see the face of Shemiz Alman. The Kedusha on the Tyra, he's just such a, a holy prince. And that was, to, for me, like the greatest part of Shir was just being able to like stare at him and be able to have that visage of Kedusha. And that's what the Messiah of Torah is all about. The being able to see the face of your Rebbe is integral to the, to the entire Messiah of Torah Midar Ladar. Rabbeinu could not wear the mask when he was giving shir. When Klai Yisrael came to him, when he was teaching Tyra, the mask came off because it wouldn't be possible to give over Tyra the same way if he was wearing a mask. You have to be able to see your Rebbe's face when you're hearing cheer from him. That's just the way it is. That's the way Tyra is given over. It's not to say that you can't listen to, to CDs in the car and, and download Shirim and listen to it that way, but that's not the primary way that Tyra is supposed to be transmitted. Torah is being transmitted midar ladar 
by Talmidim, Matshibim, Talmidim that come and see their Rebbe. And that started with Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was the first prototype of a Rebbe, and we see from him the importance of having to reveal his face that the Talmidim should be able to see the Kedusha on the face, even though it was almost impossible for them to look at that face, like we just said before. But that was part of giving over Tyra. Tyra cannot have a mask. Tyra needs to be, the Rebbe has to be visible and has to be seen in order to properly give over Shir to the Talmidim. So that's one tarot that the Mepharshim give about why when Moshe Rabbeinu was giving Shir did he take off the mask because Mitzad, the Talmidim, the Talmidim had to be able to see their Rebbe. But I saw a beautiful shot this year from Ramesha Feinstein, from the Darush Meisha. And he, it's such a chiddish, it shouldn't be such a chiddish, but it was such a chiddish to me that I have to share it with you this morning. Ramesha says the following. First he says that shot also, that Yeshayimim, that, you know, that it's so that you see a Rebbe, you have to see a Rebbe, and that's why Meshach Rabbeinu had to take the mask off. But then he says, you know something? There's another pshat, I believe, in why Meshach Rabbeinu couldn't wear the mask. And it wasn't so that the Talmidim could see him. It's so that he could see the Talmidim. The Rebbe has to be able, he says, to be to use his eyes to see Talmidim. A Rebbe can't be behind a curtain giving shear. That's not the way it works. A Rebbe can't be with a mask over his face giving shear. A Rebbe has to be able to see with his own eyes each and every one of the Talmidim. Not just see them physically and you know take attendance about how many people came to shear. That's part of it. But additionally, to be able to understand each Talmud, to be able to see how each Talmud is looking, how each Talmud is feeling. Does a Talmud's face express joy? Does a Talmud look depressed? Does a Talmud look confident? Does a Talmud look sick? A Rebbe has to be able to be very, very observant when it comes to the nature of each Talmud, when it comes to how the Talmud is doing. That's the job of a Rebbe. A Rebbe is not merely a professor. A Rebbe is not merely, I'm flattered when I go into the library, the Russian librarian is a wonderful woman and she... She helps me every single day, whenever I, not every single day, whenever I go in there and I have to order books, you know, from, from other libraries, um, she says, and then she calls me to tell me that the book came, she says, oh, professor, we got your book. We got your book. Uh, you know, in a sense, it sounds good, professor, it's, uh, it makes me feel good. <laughs> but, but, but then it reminds me, I'm not a professor. Not there's anything wrong with being a professor. It's a very, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be a professor. It's a very, it's a chashava umnas to be a professor. But that's not what a rebbe is supposed to be. A rebbe is not a, a professor. A rebbe is not a teacher. When Rav Hutner once spoke in front of a masifta, he said the following statement. He said, that he once asked a Masipta Yingo, a high school boy, what's the difference in, they were sitting privately in his office, and he said to this nice high school buffer, how would you define the difference between your Rebbe that you have, that you hear share from in the morning, and your teachers, your English teachers in the afternoon? He was interested in hearing from a Thomas perspective how he views the difference between a Rebbe and maybe, maybe there is no difference. Maybe you take notes in both class, you have tests in both morning, morning, morning subjects and afternoon subjects, and maybe they look at a rabbi and a professor or a teacher the same way. So he asked this Masipta how do you, how would you characterize the nature of the difference between the way you look at your rabbi 
and the way you look at your math teacher, your science teacher, your social studies teacher, is it the same, is it different? What do you got to say about it? And Rapunzel says that this Masipta of Akhar, he said something that was so insightful that Rapunzel said about him, Muktachani, I guarantee that you will be in the future a Mayrahirab Yisrael. He had such a, an insight when he answered this question to Rafutner that Rafutner said about him what you find in Shas that sometimes when somebody's impressed with a young budding Tamakakam, they say, Muktachani Yisrael. What did this Bakr say? He says, I'll tell you the difference that I see in between my Rebbe and my English teachers. He says, when you go up to, uh, to the fourth floor, to the cafeteria, to the dining room, and the person, whoever it may be, as wonderful as they are, they're doling out food to you on the plate, and they're giving you pizza, and they're giving you french fries, they're giving you corn on the cat, whatever it is that they're doing, they're, they're taking it and they're putting it on your plate. And you're getting nourishment from it. And that's wonderful. That's how I feel the English teachers are. They're giving me food, they're, they're giving me knowledge, and I appreciate it. But that's the extent of the, of the transmission of the information. It's basically like a, like a mechanical act of dumping food from the, from the, from the pot into my, onto my plate. It says, when it comes to my Rebbe, my Rebbe, I feel it's like a mother that's giving milk to her child, to her baby. They're both getting nutrition. Both the baby that's sucking from his mother and a person that goes up to the dining room and gets food on his plate from the, from the worker in the cafeteria, they're both getting food, nutrition, but one is just coming an external act of giving food and the other one is coming from the tamsis, it's coming from the essence of the mother. The mother isn't doling out milk to her child, she's giving from herself into the child. And that's how I see the difference between a Rebbe and the English teachers. They're both giving me information, but one, when I get information from my Rebbe, I feel that my Rebbe is it's coming from his blood. It's not just mechanical and he's writing it on the blackboard, he's reading it from a book and he has a... It's from him. It's, he's giving over his lifeblood, what he lives for, that's what he's giving over to me. And Rapunzel was blown away by this answer of a, you know, this is a mature answer, you'd expect maybe a 50-year-old Tamil Chacham to give. This is a young high school buffer. And he said, look, I don't know who, the, who he turned out to be, but Rapunzel was sure that he was going to be somebody great. And Rafutner himself was the paradigm of what a Rebbe should be. I saw recently a Misa that somebody transferred from a different yeshiva to Chaim Berlin, and he was learning by Rafutner, and then he went back to that other yeshiva and um, to visit. And the person, like one of the Rabbeim, came over to him and says, "How's it going by Chaim Berlin? You enjoying it there?" He says, "Yeah." He says, "But why did you switch?" What was wrong with this yeshiva? And what, what do you have in Chaim Berlin you didn't have here? So the Bachar says to this Rebbe, he says, Rebbe, I learned in this yeshiva for about 10 years. I got married in this yeshiva. What's my wife's name? Your wife's name? I don't know. He says, how many children do I have? I don't know. What are, do you know any of my children's names? No. Do you know what my father does for a living? No. He says, well, I went, that's why I left. He says, and I went to Chaim Berlin. Rafutner knows everything about me better than I know about myself. He knows my wife's name. He knows my children's name. He knows my grandfather's name. He gets me. He's somebody that's really able to not just teach Tyra, but he sees Talmidim as his own children, and he develops them, and he molds them, and he gives them from him, from himself. He loves us, and he breathes the, the, the breath of light into us. That's what a Rebbe is supposed to be. Yes, Moshe Rabbeinu had to wear a masra so that the Talmidim could see him. But it was equally important for him not to wear a masra when he was teaching Tyra so that he was able to see the Talmidim.
He was able to understand each and every yid and what they needed, what they were lacking, what they were specializing in. That's what a Rebbe is. A Rebbe cannot wear a mask, not so that so much the Talmudim could see him. He has to be able to have both eyes wide open and be able to be observant and perceptive when he teaches Talmudim. There's a beautiful letter from Rav Hutner. I'm going to read to you part of it. It's it's one of the nicest letters I in my book Great Jewish Letters. I I, I had to mix it up. I had to have a lot of kedayim in the book, so I have about 120 letters. And if I had the ability, I would have written 50 of them. Would have been from Rav Hutner. He has such beautiful letters. The way he wrote his poetry and his just such a super, super goggle. But I only chose three. This is one of the three letters from Avotner that I chose. The other ones we we go over constantly also about a double life, um, a broad life, not a double life, if you know what I'm talking about. And the other one is um, is, is about Sheva Yipol Tzadik Vakam, how uh, you, you fall down seven times and that ultimately brings your kima out the letter of Chizuk to every Talmud that's ever faltered in life, anyone that's ever been chayte, everyone that has a guilty, feels guilty about certain Averis, how Rafutner teaches us how we have to be able to use our nephilus, the forms that we have, the failings that we have, to our advantage, and that's how you become a goggle, actually. Rafutner was, was one of a kind. I just want to use this letter to illustrate how Rebbe has to see the Talmidim. Our Rebbe has to look at the faces of Talmidim in the course of what he does. He was writing a letter to a single Talmud. And he writes them as follows. It's a letter that was written after Sukkot one year. Let me now pinpoint the moment in the recent past to which my memory returns. The time is one of the evenings of Chalamayit Sukkot. The event is the gathering of Simcha's Beis HaShoeva. The place is the spacious sukkah, full of celebrating people on a high rooftop, distant and apart from the people below. Everything that Rebutner did, the Fad and the Amdaivim, was exceptional. Grandeur and Taira, and he was, he was everything. He was a Rashiva, he was a Hasidish Rebbe, he had the music there, and the, and, and the Taira, and the Talmidim, and it was, I was, I was never Zaycha to be at any of those gatherings with Hutner, but I was by his Talmud, or by chapters, many, many times. And, um, and they say it was something that was out of this world. So this was in a sukkah on Simchas Beis Shreva, on top of a roof, I guess in Brooklyn, and there were packed people in the sukkah, and there was people celebrating the Yantif. The interior of the sukkah is filled with a melody of deep tunes aimed at the very root of the godly spirit that resides in the soul. One of the songs is a wondrous blend of a majestic melody with the words, Achashalfi, the melody flowing from the violin, and the words flowing from the mouth rise together to their climax in profound emotion at the words that I dwell in the house of Hashem all the days of my life to behold the delights of Hashem and to contemplate in his sanctuary. Now listen to what Rupertner writes. My glance happened to fall on your face and the face was full of tears. It was nothing new to me to see tears on your face. I have seen you thus so many times. On those occasions, however, there was no one present but the two of us. And the discussions concerned those moments of distress that came and went in your life to which I was privy. But those tears of the Simchas Beis HaShoeva, those tears that dripped and flowed before the entire assemblage, were of a different category entirely. And he goes on to describe how it came from the Shoeva, from the, from the fountain of his soul. And wonder of wonders, those tears that, those tears transformed the skin are with an aleph of your face to the light. To the skin was are with an ayin and it transferred, 
transformed the skin of your face to the light, the R with an Aleph of your face. I have never seen so concrete an example of the grammatical rule that an ayin and an Aleph are miskalfing, that an Aleph and an ayin are interchangeable. I saw the skin with an ayin, the R of your face, and how it was transformed to R with an Aleph. Your light, the light was emanating, was radiating from your face, he writes to the Talmud, as the tears were flowing down from your eyes. If your memory serves you, you have certainly not forgotten that. At that moment, I caressed your face with my finger before the entire assemblage. Rebutner, in the middle of the entire assemblage, hundreds of people packed in the sukkah, this boy was crying. And Rafutner took his finger and he touched the tear on his face. Come, I will reveal to you the intent of my caress. My desire in touching you was to transform the abstract light into something concrete, something touchable by the fingers. Did I succeed in my caress? You must answer that. This is, this is how a Rebbe is supposed to be. A Rebbe is supposed to be somebody that gets it, that can see a specific Talmud and understand what he's going through, the roller coaster ride of his life, and be able to see and to notice in a packed sukkah with hundreds of people, and one boy has a tear rolling down his face and understood what that tear was and how it was coming from the, from the deep-rooted desire of his soul, of Akash Shahati Meis Hashem, and how he understood what he needed to do at that time to concretize, to make realer that experience of that buffer at that moment. If you're wearing a mask on your face, you can't see that. You wouldn't notice that here. You wouldn't notice that there's a buffer that is having such a moment of aliyah. Because you have a mask on your face. You're just busy giving your shirt. But a real Rebbe is able to never have a mask. A real Rebbe is able to see with his eyes each and every Talmud and understand what that specific Talmud's needs are. Ravuna had a Talmud. And many Talmudim. But one of the main Talmudim was Rav Freifeld. And Rav Freifeld was a very colorful person, a brilliant Talmud Chacham, but much more than that, he was, he was the Rebbe that all Rabbeim can learn from. He was a Rebbe's Rebbe. If you want to read a great biography in your spare time, I think I spoke about this by the, by the Purim Cotton Tish, um, it's the book, the biography of Arushana Freifeld. It, it will change your life. If you didn't want to go into Chinuch before, you will want to go into Chinuch after. And if you wanted to go into Chinuch before, you will be chalishing to go into Chinuch after. Freifeld understood, he got it. He understood how to deal with people. People loved him, but he knew how to mold Talmidim. He took people of all states of religiosity, from very from people to Bali Chuva to not from people, and just simply knew how to deal with them and how to, how to touch them in a way that was so unique that it changed their life. He used to, in his office, there was like hanging on the wall opposite him, there was a, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was sort of like a key, a key inside of a frame. And... They would ask him, like, why do you have that? It's like a funny thing to hang on a wall. It was like a, a big key inside of a frame. And he says that the reason why I have that on my wall is because many t- times I'm talking to Talmidim, I'm talking to people in my office, and, and I don't know exactly how to unlock their soul. There's something in that person that I want to unlock, I want to open up, and I'm not sure exactly how to do it. So I look at that key and it reminds me that every single person, there's a way to pick that lock. I just have to figure out. He says, sometimes it's a cup of coffee that we drink together. Sometimes it's a funny joke. Sometimes there's a word that I could say that could open up their heart. But there's always a way 
to be able to unlock the secret of that Talmud. One of my favorite stories from the book is that there was a, a boy who grew up in a, in a, I think in a religious home in Brooklyn, and he sort of went OTD. He didn't want to stay in, uh, within Yiddishkeit anymore. And he started, he liked nature, and he went on a trip without necessarily any intention of coming back. And he found himself in the mountains of Montana, of all places. And he began to uh, join an Indian reservation. And he went hunting, and he had a tipi, I guess, and he went... Uh, he did all of them and hug him, everything that Indian, American Indians do, that's what he wanted to do. And he was living there for a long, long time, and he was loving it, he really got into that lifestyle, he loved the outdoors, he loved nature, and he felt like great. And there was this old woman, old woman Indian, that she was said to have all the secrets of life. She was like the big guru of, you know, of life and wisdom, and it was his ambition that he was going to go and travel to meet this woman. She was, a, I think, from the Sioux Indian tribes. I remember well, I once, when I was in seventh grade, I did a project on the Sioux Indians. Every person had to pick out a different Indian tribe to do it. I got the Sioux. They were very cool Indians. Um, I got an A-plus on the paper, but that's a, I digress. Um, <laughs> So she was like the big mumcha in life. She was a very wise woman. And he went to visit her. It seems like her home, she lived in, a, in the frame of a 41 Chevy. That's where she lived. And they, they made up like a, a house within a, within a car, whatever that means. She was so wise, I don't know why she couldn't build the real house. But anyway... And she started talking to this to this boy, and she said, uh, you know, he says he's from Brooklyn, and he's, he's Jewish, and he's looking for the meaning of life. And she says, I don't understand it. He said, you come from the people of the man on the holy white rock. That was a reference to Meshach Rabbeinu. You come from the people of the man on the holy white rock, and you're coming out to Montana to get wisdom from us? You go back home. That's where the wisdom is. Go back to the home of the people, of the man on the white, holy white rock. That's where you're going to find true wisdom. What are you coming, wasting your time here? You're finding Kachma from us? And he was all taken aback. This is, you know, this is like the, the pinnacle of his Indian career, and he's told to go back to Brooklyn. Anyway, he finally goes back to Brooklyn. He hitches a ride home. And he talks again to his parents, and I'm making a very long story much shorter. Whenever I tell my kids to make a long story short, and they want to go to, they don't want to go to bed yet, I'm telling them a bedtime story. They say, no, make a short story long. Don't make a long story short. Anyway, um, so, so she, eventually, somebody says, you know what? You're not going to be happy in any of the standard yeshivas. Go to Rabbi Freikon. Go to Sharyashiv. Sharyashiv will be a good place for you to go. So he went there, and normally all the other people, the rabbis in Brooklyn or wherever, whenever he started telling them about what he was doing, and he was a hunter, they would say, Hunter, that's Esav, it's Nimrod, like, get out of here, you're, you know, Tommy Tommy Yitra. He went to Rav Shomer Freifel, he was a very broad person, Rav Shomer Freifel, and he, he was very interested. Wow, you hunted deer, you hunted elk, how did you do that? What, what did you, you know, how did you do it? You, you had to, how did you get this chachma? Like, he was like really building him up, and he meant it. And then, um, he accepted him into the yeshiva, he gave him a lot of covet, and the guy really felt good about himself. So, one day he was in Rip Freifeld's office talking to him, and Rip Freifeld had like an emergency phone call that he had to leave the office for a few minutes. So this this guy, he got up and he started looking around at the svarim that were around the office, and then he he went behind Rip Freifeld's desk 
to, to see the svarim that he was learning, svarim that he was reading. And then he noticed like a little color underneath the desk. He saw that there was what, what appeared to be svarim on the floor. And he knew that you don't keep svarim on the floor. Why would a fraudulent keep svarim on the floor? So he bent down and he picked up a whole stack of books. And he almost fainted. Because these were books that Freifeld went and he took out of the library. And these were books about the culture of the American Indian, the nature of the American Indian, the history of the civilization of American Indians, what makes American Indians, you know, what, 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 what do they see in life, what's their philosophy, what's their... Rav Shemifrav, as if he had nothing better to do with his life, because he only had a yeshiva, a very big yeshiva, fundraising, learning, teaching, giving, he had nothing better to do but to go to the library, take out books about American Indians, to understand this boy deeply, to know what this boy is all about, what makes him tick, what, why would he be attracted to the American Indians, what is it about them that's special, how did they hunt, how did they fish, how did they... How did they build those teepees? He wanted to know everything about them so that he could better understand the nature of a Talmud, of one Talmud. That's what a Rebbe is. If a Rebbe is wearing a masva, he ain't going to see any of this. He's not going to go to the library, he's not going to be interested, he's not going to care. I have to shear to give and that's it. I go home after the shear. A real Rebbe, says Ramesha, is somebody that doesn't wear a masva during shear. He's somebody that has perceptive eyes to look at every Talmud and to understand every Talmud and to feel for every Talmud and to have aspirations for every Talmud. That's a Rebbe. That's a real Rebbe. If you can find a Rebbe like that, then get him. And don't let him go. I once heard a, a cute story about a Rashiva. I'm not going to say who it is because it's Lashon Hara. But he's not alive anymore. But he used to basically learn at home. He would dive in yeshiva, go home to learn, and then he would um, come give his shir, and then not really stick around maybe too much longer after shir to talk with him. He'd go home. And he'd spend most of the day at home and, and, and just come primarily to give shir. So on Purim, in a lot of yeshivas, they have shtick in the base medrash. You know, it's like the one time that you can get like subtle or not so subtle messages to people that you want to the whole year, but it's not appropriate. So on Purim, either through, uh, sometimes people use a spiel, or they use a video, or they use, and sometimes, but I remember in, in, in the yeshivas that I went to for high school, and, uh, one yeshiva actually, I went to that, you know, they had like on, on the top of that, by every rabbi's shender, you know, on the wall there would be a different sign with inside jokes about, you know, what he did right, what he did wrong, and, the, and uh, you know, and some guys, you know, around the base matters, they'd smoke, they would hang like a big pack of cigarettes on top of their, you know, different shtick that they would be doing. Anyway, so with this rabbi, they, the yeshiva, they wanted to get the point across, that they wanted him to stay and, you know, spend some time with them. And so they put a big sign on top of his shtender on Purim, Ashrei Yeshve Vesecha. Fortune is the person that sits at home. And he's sitting, it's a joke, you know, you're sitting at home every single day, come to Yeshiva a little bit, spend some time with us. And so you'd think he gets the message, but he didn't. After Purim, he just went back to the same, saying it's very cute, but now, but this is my seder, and this is how I work it. So the next Purim, they put up a sign on top of a shtender. Ashrei yeshrei vesecha oi. You're still sitting at home. That's not how a Rebbe necessarily is supposed to be. This happens to be a Rebbe that, if I would tell you who it was, you would be shocked because it's a Rebbe that, halavai, we should all be a, a mashu of this Rebbe. But that's the way I heard it from, from, in, from the Hak in Yeshiva world. <laughs> Not the yeshiva world. Yeshiva world. Um, but it's very important. It's very important for Rebbe not to wear, not to wear a mask. I heard once a story, though. This is the the danger of being 
too perceptive as a Rebbe. You have to get it right. It's not enough just to, to see and, to, and to, to judge. You have to really understand. This is a sad story. But it's very, it's very important. There was a, a, a Rebbe who had a Talmud in his shir. And the Talmud was not doing so well. He had a lot of family issues. He had a lot of problems and challenges. And he wasn't the smartest boy in Shear, and he wasn't doing so well always on tests, but the Rebbe was really trying to help him and work with him. And he was doing very well. And one day the Rebbe was proctoring an exam that he was giving the Talmidim. And he, was, he gave out the sheets, and he was, you know, many times Rebbeim are sitting and learning while they're proctoring the test that they give. And he picks up his head out of the Gemara, and he notices that this Talmud was had like what would appear to be like a like a little bit of a crib sheet that he had taken out of his pocket in the middle of the test and he the Rebbe is like watching him and he keeps it over here and he's like looking at it and then he starts like writing an answer. And then he looks again at the sheet and he and he's the Rebbe is like so upset. I worked so hard in this buffer, I put so much time in and I taught him I thought I taught him ethics and honesty and morality and and I put so much good stuff into him, and this is what I get. This is—he's cheating on a test in front of me. He brings a crib sheet into into the test, and that. how could he do that? Should I stop the test right away and tell him to come up and, and and hand it in, or? But he held himself back, and he waited until after Shear was over, and he, um, and then he calls the Talmud over by recess, and he says. Yossi, I, I saw what you were doing, and I'm very disappointed. Says, Rabbi, what did you see? Says, Come on, Yossi, the gig is up. I, mean, I, 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 you took out that crib sheet in the middle of Shear, and you kept looking at it, and then you kept writing the answers from that sheet to the, to the, I'm not stupid, I saw it. I thought I was learning, I was watching it. I didn't have my mask on. I had my eyes on you, and, and I was observing very carefully that you were looking at that sheet, and then you were writing. So the Talmud, Yassi says to Rabbi, says, Rabbi, I hate to say this, but Rabbi's wrong in this case. And he pulls out a piece of paper, and there was a, a note that this Rabbi had written to Yassi. And the note read, Yossi, you're an amazing person. I have so much confidence in you. I believe in you. You could be anything that you want in life. And he says, Rebbe, whenever I feel a little bit low, whenever I feel that I can't do something, I pull out that piece of paper, and it gives me chizik. He says, Rebbe, I was taking your test, and the questions were hard for me. And I didn't think that I could do it. So I pulled out that piece of paper and I, every time that I had an answer that I didn't know, I would look at that piece of paper and with your trust and with your love and with your confidence, it gave me the ability to suddenly be able to get the answer. Obviously the Rebbe probably, you know, wanted to retire at that point. But um, and maybe he should have... But you have to be careful as a rabbi also. You have to know, even when you're observing a Talmud, you have to really understand the Talmud. And sometimes we get it wrong. and Sometimes we make snap judgments about Talmudim because we don't understand them well enough, because we didn't give enough time and enough patience to listen and to care, then we don't really get the whole Talmud. There's a story about a group of um, a group of rabbeim from yeshiva that came to Rav Shach, and they said to Rav Shach that there's a buffer in yeshiva, and he's you know he's not doing well, and we we caught him uh, doing this, and we caught him doing that, and uh, we want to throw him out of yeshiva before. But there was a little bit of a debate amongst on how long we came to the yeshiva to ask to be, to give a halacha what we should do. But we're, mamash, we're, we're, we're ready to throw him out. 
So, Rav Shach started screaming at these Rabbeim. He says, you're right, son. You call yourself Rosh Hashivas, Rabbeim, you're right, son. You're murderers. We're murderers? What, what are we doing? He says, do you know anything about this boy? Do you know anything about his background? Do you know if his parents are happily married? Do you know if his father is gainfully employed? Do you know if there's any sickness in the family? How do you make a judgment? How do you decide of the fate of a boy's life? How can you throw a boy out of yeshiva without knowing anything about the boy? You don't know the challenges that he went through. Maybe you saw him do something and it was inappropriate. Maybe you saw something that was not... But you don't know. If you don't know enough about him, how do you make this decision about ruining a boy's life unless you really understand where he's coming from. You don't know him. And that's true. For a Rebbe to really be a Rebbe, a Rebbe has to know his Talmudim. He has to understand the Talmudim. And if you can understand the Talmud, then you can really guide him and mold him and shape him because you're able to, to know his strengths and know his weaknesses. And that's something that every Rebbe is going to have to give a din v'cheshpen for someday. I think I can, I'll be able to say to the Rebbe Yisrael the following. We had hundreds of boys in this medical helmet. And I can't say that I was able to really understand every Talmud. I can say one thing, that the Talmidim that wanted me to understand them, I understood them. The Talmidim that came and shlooz with me and spoke about their life and talked to me and entrusted me with, with details and that came to Shiurim, came to Baden, came to Shmuz, and came to Chaburus, came to whatever I gave, I think that I can honestly say that I understood them, and I helped them, and I developed them. And I maintain a Keshav with Talmidim 10 years, 15 years after they left Yeshiva. I can't say, and maybe it's going to be a time on me someday, that I, I chase guys in the dormitory. I can't say that, because I don't do that. Because... That's not the way I am. But I've never said no to any buffer. If any buffer ever came to me and asked me to learn with them privately, to talk to them, I dropped everything and I did that. And I'm not saying I'm the world's greatest Rebbe, but I'm trying. I try my best to really understand and to help every buffer that wants my help. Revolvi has a letter in Igor Suksavim and he writes as follows, one line in one of the letters, Iker ha-chinuch harehu, what is the definition of chinuch? How do you define chinuch? Is chinuch, I think if most people would be given a questionnaire, write in, in one sentence what you define as chinuch. When somebody wants to be a doctor, you could define what a doctor is. A lawyer, you could define what a lawyer is. What is a mechanic? You're going to say a chinuch, you have to be very smart, you have to be able to give, you know, to be a very, to, to know how to learn very well, and to give over sheer, be a good Balmazbir, um, you know, to be able to give good tests and to be a fair marker. Like, that's, that's what a teacher is. That's what, uh, that's what somebody kind of is. He's a teacher. He's a pedagogue. Revolvi doesn't say anything when he's defining Kinnah. He says nothing about Tyrock. He says nothing about brilliance. He says nothing about oneness, about clarity. He says one thing. Iker ha-chinach, you want to know what chinach is? Harehu, live nice Adam. Chinach is about building men. Ubinyan ze nasa, how do you build a man? You could build a building, you could build a sandcastle, you could build with Lego blocks. How do you build a man? By understanding the Talmud, recognizing the Talmud, identifying the Talmud. 
you enter into his problems. If he has a problem, it troubles you. If your Talmud is, is plagued by something, if your Talmud is under a lot of stress, if your Talmud is not feeling well, if your Talmud has troubles at home, troubles with Shidduchim, troubles with Shalom Bayis, troubles with children, you have to enter into their problems. And you help him in the best way you can to unlock those problems and to solve those problems. And to give them as almost like a, as an afterthought, you have to teach them some Taira, you gotta teach them Midas, but that's not what a, that's not what a Chinuch, that's not what Chinuch is. Chinuch is live nice Adam. It's to build a man. To build a man. That means to take a human being that's a Gailam, take a human being that doesn't really have identity, he looks in a mirror and he sees like a blank face staring back at him, he doesn't know what he wants to be with his life, he doesn't know his strengths, he doesn't understand why he's failing, and a Rebbe should be able to sit with him, identify the problems, work them out, give him Aetis, daven for him, that's a Rebbe. That's what a Rebbe is. And if you feel that you could do that, then you should consider Chinuch as an option. Today, Chinuch is like, it's not really an option for many. It's nice to learn. I want to learn a couple of years after I get married. I want to get smicha maybe. But to be in Chinuch, I don't know. You know, I, I want to make a lot of money. I want to go to Wall Street. I want to be a doctor, a lawyer, a PT, a PA, dentist. That's all good. That's wonderful. That's amazing. But if a person has the ability to care about somebody else and to enter into their lives and to try to help them and to build them, then they should consider Chinuch. Chinuch is a, is a wonderful option, but not for everybody. If you're going into Chinuch for money, let me tell you something, don't. And if you're going into Chinuch because of, you know, you think it's going to be a lot of covet, maybe. But if you're going to Chinuch because you really want to give over the Torah of Meishra Abenu, and you want to transmit what you got from your Abayim and give that over with love and with understanding and with sensitivity and with caring, then it should absolutely, you're the right person to be a Mechanech. I had a great Rebbe that I speak about a lot. He was my 7th and 8th grade Rebbe and he was Nifter very young. And I remember one time I when I was learning in Chaim Berlin, and he was a big Chaim Berliner, we were schmoozing on a street corner in Flatbush. And I was very young, I don't know, I was 20 years old, 21 years old, and I was thinking of, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be with my life, that's the truth. Um, I was thinking of different options, and my father was in business, and, you know, different things that, you know, that sort of interested me, and I was considering this career, that career, and I remember it was like, it was late at night and we were talking on this and there was just like a street lamp that was shining on top of us and he said something that never occurred to me in my life he says Maisha, did you ever consider going to Chinuch? and I said, Rabbi, no and he said to me, he says but you should so I think you'd be really good at it. And it was like the first time that anyone told me that. And it was the first time I would even consider it. And, you know, for many years I didn't. But it sort of like, it planted a seed in my brain that, you know, I could do it. And then my Rebbe thinks that I could do it. He gave me that little note to keep in my pocket, to give me confidence. 
And many years later, it was about 12 years later, and I, it's a long story how I actually, you know, got into Chinuch, but the idea germinated in my head, and, and, it, and it, Baruch Hashem, it happened. And I'm putting that seed in your head also. That if you think that you're the type of person that could take off your masna and look at people and want to get involved with their lives and to help them grow and to change the course of history through your Talmidim, then you should absolutely consider that. It should be as viable an option as dental school or law school or PT or, or psychology or any of the other. This should be also an option. And so few people are doing it. It might be because there aren't that many positions available. It's a very sought-after field, and there are many qualified community out there, but they're not necessarily qualified in this department. They're qualified maybe in terms of giving a shear, being a lamdan, being a buffy, being a... But that's not necessarily all that a Talmud needs. A Talmud needs more than brilliance. A Talmud needs a sensitive soul to listen and to hear and to see what a Talmud needs and then to go to the ends of the world in order to make sure that that Talmud is set on the right path for life. Let that seed be placed in the fertile soil of your brain. And even if right now, today, you sort of say, it's a nice schmooze, but like, I don't think it's for me. I understand that. And maybe you're right. But maybe it is for you. And maybe if you let that sea just sit there, and you water it from time to time, then when the time is right, and you feel that this is really what I want to do with my life, then maybe you should consider it. Because the world needs you. Klal Yisrael needs you. There are so many children, so many Talmidim that they need love, they need attention, they don't get it at home. And they need Eitzis and Hadracha, and they need to be they need to be made to feel like a, a human being and bring out the greatest potential that they have. That's what a Rebbe is. Meshra Avinu was the greatest Rebbe, he's the Rabbi Shal Yisrael. Meshra Avinu had this Kedusha coming from his face. And people couldn't look after the Chet they were embarrassed to look at Meshra Avinu. So in deference to that Bushah, he put a mask on his face. But Meshra Avinu had to take off that mask when he was giving Tyra over because that was going to be the prototype of Limud HaTayra until the end of time that a Rebbe has to take the mask off when he's learning. Brilliance alone, giving a sheer behind the curtain, is not what a Rebbe is. A Rebbe is not Asher Yeshua A Rebbe has to go to the base Medrash, has to be here day and night, eat the yeshiva, sleep the yeshiva, live the yeshiva. That's what a Rebbe is. And that's why Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was giving over Torah, I'm sorry, I have to take off the mask. I have to see every Yid. I have to understand every Yid. These are my Talmidim. This is what I need to do as a Rabbi. I have to see them. I have to take the mask off my eyes and to be able to behold them in all of their beauty. And that's why Moshe Rabbeinu was able to be Megavel, Klai Yisrael, Shishim Rebai. And that's why we're all here today. But Kal Yisrael needs that transmission going forward into the future, raising future generations of Talmidim. I'll end with a Misa with a great Rebbe, Reb Shlaima Hyman, who was a Shiva and Tarvadas, the Dusha Reb Shlaima. And he was giving a shear, and that morning, there was a huge blizzard in, in New York and many people could not get out of their front doors to, to come to Shir. So if normally he had, let's say, 60, 70 Talmidim in Shir, today he had three or four. It's a big room with three guys sitting. And you know the way it is when you're 
you know, on a snowy day outside and there's like a, there's no one showed up to yeshiva that day. I'm sure you've had those days in yeshiva and you just want to kick back and like shmuzah the Rebbe, like it's an off day. It's a, it's a yame de pagra. It's a day that you could just take off and, and just relax and chill a little bit. And I guess these Hamidim wanting to hear maybe some mices from Abshleimah or And Abshleim Hyman gets up and he starts giving the shear with the same passion and the same vigor and screaming with a booming voice on the top of his lungs as if the shear was packed. And, and there was only three Talmudim, three, four Talmudim. One of them, by the way, was Rebellious Svei, the future Ashiva Philadelphia. And, one of them, not Rebellion, I'm sure, but one of them, one of the Talmidim said to Rabbi Shlomo Hyman, says, Rebbe, you know, b'mechilas k'vay tayrasa, like, b'mechilas, but like, I don't know if you noticed, but there's, it's only like a few of us here today. You don't even have to give shear, really, if you don't want to. But if you want to give shear, like, you could whisper it, and we'd still be able to hear. You don't have to, like, say, like, conserve your energy. What are you screaming for? There's only three, there's not six, there's not a hundred, there's three guys here in the shear. So Shlomo Hyman looks at them and he says, you see three people in the room. He says, I see thousands of people in the room. Thousands of people? Where are thousands of people? He says, it's not just three people. It's the three of you and I'm giving shir to you and I'm giving shir to your Talmidim and I'm giving shir to your Talmidim's Talmidim. I'm giving shir to your children I'm giving shear to your grandchildren and your grandchildren's grandchildren. I see thousands of people in front of me. There might be three people in the room, but to me there's 30,000, 50,000, 100,000 people here. And he was right. Those Talmidim, each of them became big Rosh Hashivas who had Talmidim, and those Talmidim pollinated their Tyra, their Abayim's Tyra, to the world. And so there wasn't just three people. That's how a Rebbe has to see a Talmud. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't just see the people in front of him. He saw that in 2016 there will be Talmudim and Beis Medrashal Talmud that would come out of this. And because of that he understood there was no Talmud that could be wasted. There was no opportunity not to be taken. And that's how a good Rebbe, with real eyes, are able to see a Talmud. They don't just see one Talmud and, all right, listen, if something goes wrong with him, if he goes OTD or he's not exactly myself, I got, you know, 200 others to work with or to ruin. A Rebbe has to see every single Talmud as mamish being a world in and of themselves. And I see that. I mean, it's not, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be able to see that. We just had an alumni Shabbaton two weeks ago, and we had, I think, um, I don't know, several hundred people here for Shabbos. They weren't all alumni. Half, a quarter of them were alumni. And they brought their wives, and they brought their many children, and we had a whole Shabbos of getting together and seeing the Paris. And many of these children of Talmidim, they're already in yeshivas on their own. And you know why they're in good yeshivas? Because they came here. I'm not saying I don't that I know exactly what would have been with these Talmidim had they not come here, but I, I'm pretty proud of the fact that that because they came here, they found in a certain derech, and they're raising their family in a certain derech, and their children will also be B'nai Tyra. And their grandchildren, all because they came here. It doesn't take a genius. A Rebbe has an opportunity to mamish shape dar dairis. I don't think an actuary can, can say that. And I don't think a dentist can say that. You could say other things. You're doing good work and you're being mefanious your family and you're, and you're, you're helping people. You're making them healthy. You're making them feel good. But you can't say in too many other professions that you are really changing the course of history. 
And that's what every Rebbe, I don't care if you're a first grade Rebbe, if you're a kindergarten Rebbe, if you're a base Spanish Rebbe, if you're a, if you're, that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. Let that seed be planted. Think about it. If you feel that you are, you love Tyra and you want to give over that Tyra, but not just Tyra, you want to be able to shape and help future Tyras of Kal Yisrael, then you could be Maisha Abena yourself. But on one condition. That when you're giving sheer, never wear a mask. Make sure to take the mask off, not just so that Talmudim could see you, but much more importantly, so that you could see the potential in every single comment. Have a good chance.